the shadows and into the light. It's TSL Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. Holding it down, as always, is your boy, Mark Gray. And we welcome you to Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. It's your boy, Mark Gray. That's Mark with a K, Gray with a N. Thank you for hanging out with us. Remember, you can always check us out at TSL Sports Talk at theshadowleague.com. If you want to hit us with an email, find us on social media at Shadow League TSL and... The TSL Sports Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to reach out to me, I'm at The Sports Groove on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But it's not about me for this particular episode. Where is it that you get a 4-2 legend? I mean, when you talk NBA, HBCU, CIAA, and hoops, the legendary Earl the Pearl Monroe stands like no other. And he joins us right now as we look back at the greatness of his career and all things basketball. And Earl, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. How things going these days? Uh, things are going well, Mark, and uh, nice to be on with you. Hey, it's always cool. Now, last time we saw each other, it was in Baltimore, and I was struck by the irony because uh, you played for uh, the Bullets for several years before earning the legendary standards at the pro level in New York. But now your beloved CIAA basketball uh, tournament is coming back to Baltimore the year after next, and it'll be played in the same building that part of your uh, legend was constructed. Uh, was that moment when you heard the CIAA going back to Baltimore sort of surreal for you? Uh, what kind of emotions did that evoke in you? Well, you, you know, I was I was part of the team that went to Charlotte to try and pitch to the CIAA to get to Baltimore. So it was a it was a you know it was ironic um, the fact that I talked to the mayor of Baltimore and um, uh, she wanted me to you know go down with the team to try and pitch um, you know, bringing the CIAA to Baltimore. I thought it was a good uh, shot because you know, I, first of all, I'm I'm CIAA and uh, and I'm Baltimore, so it just made sense. And uh, once I found out that we got the nod there in Baltimore, it was um, really fantastic. And I think uh, a lot of times when you have a you know the tournament like it's been in Charlotte for what 13 years or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you, you need to move. You need move new blood. You need to see new people. And now the CIAA has an opportunity to perform in front of you know a different audience and other people who might not even have known about the CI2A. Yeah, about that for a second. You know, Charlotte's a bit of a destination. You know, you're always talking the last week in February where the weather is crazy, certainly in Baltimore. I mean, if you if you ever want to know what's happening with the weather, just take a breath that last week of uh, February, and it may change up on you. Uh, how do you think Baltimore stacks up as like a destination town for the tourists, you know, the periphery basketball fan like Charlotte did? Because Charlotte was able to milk the fact that it's got great weather at that time of year. And then from one person on the other end of this conversation, I think the municipality started sort of taking for granted, if you will, its uh, its visitors. So how do you think uh, – Baltimore stacks up against Charlotte as a destination for fans to come. 
Well, you know, it, 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 the good thing is, especially for us, uh, you know, people who've gone to uh, those HBCU schools, uh, you know, down south, uh, Baltimore is easy to get to. I mean, you know, you can go by Amtrak, um, you can get there by plane, um, you know, you can drive. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great scenario for, you know, folks in the you know, parameters of where, where Baltimore is. Um, it's, I just think it's a great situation. Uh, you've got the harbor, which is where everything basically will be at. And you have, you know, the Tourist Bureau who will, you know, as well try and do more for the tourists, so to speak, that come to the CIAA in terms of the rooms and the prices and things of that nature. So I think it stacks up pretty pretty well, you know, as opposed to, you know, what Charlotte was about. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to a great time in, in Baltimore. Uh, you know, I love to eat. Um, Baltimore's got some great restaurants uh, and some great sites uh, as well. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, it's a great thing for not only the CIAA, but it's also a great thing for the city of Baltimore. Before we back off the CIAA, they made headlines. I called the uh, CIAA semis in the finals for HSRN, and I got a chance to see that kid, Amir Hinton, who played at Shaw, who was mm-hmm. the uh, player of the year in the CIAA. Mm-hmm. He decided to forsake his last year eligibility and go into the NBA draft. I don't think there's been a player in the last decade who's been drafted uh, from a Division two school. I don't know if you saw the young fella, but what are your thoughts on, you know, leaving and going pro from a Division two school when, you know, it's very difficult with the one-and-dones and the foreign players for even four-year seniors to get drafted right now? Well, you know, it is a tough situation. Uh, if you're going to leave school uh, early, I, I would hope that you would uh, have an agent that uh, is somewhat in the know that uh, will make sure that you get to the, you know, to be seen and to be seen in the right light. Uh, you know, it, it, the biggest problem about being in a small school like that, and um, of course I was from a small school, but it's a different time. Um, back in Back in the day, you know, you could look in the stands at uh, any of our, our games and you'll see a Red Holzman who was a scout at the time or, or Earl Lloyd who was a scout at the time. So, you see, you had a lot of scouts who were coming to, you know, to our games. Today, um, it's a little bit different. I remember my coach, Big House Gaines, saying uh, when he was coaching the latter years, he, says, he said, well, this was in the early 90s, late 80s or whatever. He said, you know, the problem we have is that of the 200 best players, in the, you know, best black players in the country, none of them have, have enrolled in a HBCU school. So, you know, our, our, our talent is being eroded because all the you know, white major schools and whatnot are taking our guys and, you know, we have a problem. And that's one of the problems that we have all along because now you don't have as many scouts going to those schools. So if you're going to come out early, you're going to need to make sure that you're going to have you have a place to go. 
Yeah, Hinton does have an NBA body. I'm just wondering, uh, is he ready for it? So you wish the young fellow the best of luck as he tries to follow in the footsteps of uh, Flip Murray, who left Shaw and had a pretty successful career in the NBA. Talking with NBA HBCU CIAA basketball legend Earl Monroe as we continue on Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. I'm Mark Gray. Thank you for chilling with us at this time. To your time in the CIAA and playing with, or for, I should say, Coach uh, Big House Gaines, you um, were part of what could be argued was the best conference in college basketball. I mean, when you look at it objectively speaking, when you look at the talent that came out of the CIAA, certainly during the 50s and the 60s, before integration really took, at least in my opinion, the top black players that would have probably been CIAA bound who went to the uh, ACC, the CIAA was probably the premier conference in college basketball. What was the night-to-night challenge like going up against some of the phenomenal talent that you went up against, and how did that prepare you for the league? Well, you know, you're probably right in terms of, you know, the guys that played in the CIAA. Um, most of those guys, you know, were, you know, came from, you know, New York, uh, Philadelphia, uh, you know, Baltimore, uh, all, you know, all these other schools, you know, all these other cities up, up that played, you know, the type of basketball that we were used to, accustomed to seeing. Um, especially for me, Coach Gaines played an up-tempo game, so that really got me ready for going into the NBA. But when you think in terms of going up night, in, you know, night in and night out against guys, everybody had, had a reputation. So you had to come with your A game every night and play it. I think that's one of the reasons why you had so many guys that were able to come out of the CIW and perform well and do well in the NBA. I'm looking at a picture now uh, on my wall, and it's me against the uh, Norfolk uh, State team with Bobby Danridge. And, um, you know, they, you know there were so many guys. You know, you talk about the Rick Mahorns, the, the Charles Oakleys. You, you talk about other guys. And even before me, uh, Sam Jones and, and Al Adels. You got uh, Cleo Hill. Uh, there are a lot of guys who came out of our conference. And, um, you know, they set the pace. They set the tone for people coming down to see, you know, you know our conference and, and, and knowing that we had good ball players there. I would have loved to have been around to sneak into the gym and watch some of the runs you guys had, you know, uh, during the off season. Just to be hanging out in the gym because I can only imagine what that was like. Players have for years been coming together, you know, balling during the summertime to stay in shape. You develop camaraderie and things like that. During the off season, what were those pickup games like? Did you ever play against any of those uh, players during the off season when y'all were just having fun? Some of those, you know, uh, Wake Forest, uh, NC State, <laughs> guys like that. Well, we actually, you know, we played against Wake Forest. 
uh, and it was like during the season. You know, we played against you know, in the preseason and things like that, but we played against those teams because, you know, back in those days, the, the Division One or white, the big white teams weren't allowed to play against us, us black in schools. So we practiced, um, we played against those guys like around 12, 30, 1 o'clock at night. And, uh, you know, it was closed gym, so nobody, you know, could, could see us and nobody could report that we were playing or we were scrimmaging and whatnot. And I think that uh, playing against those guys uh, really uh, made us understand, you know, what kind of talent we had. I mean, obviously, by my senior year, we went on, we were 32-1 or something like that. And we understood that we had talent. And we didn't care who we played. And, uh, of course, we went on to win the national championship for the uh, college division. But we felt as though we were good enough to play against anybody. And you probably were. And I think that, you know, the, 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 the times were a lot different then, Earl. Uh, did that give the black player from a HBCU conference is now an edge, sort of a chip on your shoulder where you were proving yourself and that fueled a lot of you guys' greatness at the next level? Well, you know, it, <laughs> you know, you look back at, at how, how everything was, you know, there was a quota system in the NBA. So, you know, you had, you, you know, you had so many black guys who had the talent to go to, you know, go on and play pro in the NBA, but never got there. So there was another league called the Eastern League where all the guys who, you know, didn't make it or didn't go to the NBA, these were, they were playing in, 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 in a, in that type of league, um, at the same time, you you had guys who were great players that when they finally got to the NBA couldn't really exhibit, you know, what they could do. You had guys like Willie Salisbury, Andy Johnson, and, and guys like that who were great players and great scorers. But when they got to the NBA, they couldn't, you know, display their offensive prowess. They had to be defensive players. And so, you know, as time went on, you know, and I guess really around, you know, my time and, and with, um, you know, Guys, all of a sudden, started to let these, you know, my, my, you know, my guy, my kind of guy, like the the guards, the, the the black young black guards who were able to really play, really exhibit what they, you know, what they could do, and probably one of the reasons why I'm who I am, or whatever the case may be, was that I went to a team like Baltimore, who with a coach like Gene Hugh was able to let me play my game and people didn't like my game at first, you know, because they were purists, so to speak. You know, they didn't know who I was, the number number two pick in the NBA, you know, going to Baltimore from a black school. Who is that guy? And so they were talking about he's just a hot dog and so forth and so on. But once they start seeing people come to the games and wanting to see me, then I became somewhat of an offensive uh, juggernaut and a genius officer. 
But, you know, it's the opportunity that we got. And, and at that time, the opportunity was just opening up. The teams were starting to have more black guys on the team, and guys were able to start doing the things that they could do. The incomparable Earl Monroe is our guest as we continue with Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. I am Mark Gray. You mentioned how when you looked in the stands uh, when you were in college and you'd see people like your coach in New York, Red Holtzman, who was a scout at the time, the last guy to lead the Knicks to an NBA championship back in the early 70s, Uh, Earl Lloyd, who was a West Virginia State graduate, HBCU product, who was a scout at the time. Uh, I went to Morgan State, so when I was in school, and thankfully he was real open with, you know, teaching me the nuances of the game, Nat Frazier uh, was an assistant coach. So there seemed to be a lot of synergy uh, between that HBCU pipeline from the Mid-Atlantic region to New York, which led to a championship. Talk about how that all came together, if you could. And did you realize when you left Baltimore for the Knicks that you were on the verge of something special? Well, I didn't realize that at the time. (laughs) You know, um, my after, um, I I think we lost to someone in the – the Bucks in the um, 71 season, we lost to them in, in, in the NBA championship game. Um, my, my agent asked the Baltimore Bullets if they would tra- trade me, and they said they would. And so the summer went by and so forth, and in the latter part of the summer, I think they traded for Archie Clark. And when they traded for Archie Clark, they said, okay, now, Baltimore, we have the best backcourt in the, in, in the league. So my, my agent said, um, well, that means you're not going to be trading him. And so four games into the season, he called me and said, Earl, you know, just don't go to the game tonight. And I didn't go to the game. And I, so I just essentially stopped playing for for the Bullets. It just so happened that Archie Clark didn't go to the game either. So, so they thought we were trying to do a coup. Um, but after I, you know, found out that uh, all the things that were going on, and I just decided that uh, hey, I'm not going to be in Baltimore. And so I just automatically just left the air. My my mindset was to go someplace else to play. I had given um, the Bullets three places that I wanted to go. One was Philadelphia, which was home. Uh, the other was uh, L.A. and the other was uh, sh- Chicago. And um, after a few days, my agent called me and said, "Well." Um, We've got a, a, a deal on the table for you. And I said, okay, where? And he said, well, New York. Well, I said, oh, no, not New York. <laughs> you know, they, they are worst enemies. I can't go to New York. And so he said, well, listen, you know, take a couple of days and think about it and uh, come back. And so I went home to Philadelphia, talked to my good friend, uh, Sonny Hill, who was uh, one of my mentors in Philly, and talked to my mom. And, and uh, so, you know, the consensus was, hey, I'm a basketball player. I could play under any circumstances, and I'm from Philly. So I said, okay, I'm going to go. 
and I called Larry, you know, Larry Flasher, who was my agent, and said, okay, um, let's do this. And once I got there, I mean, I never realized, you know, you know, figured that this was going to happen in the way that it did because, you know, they were already set. They had Walt Frazier and, and Dick Barnett in the backcourt. So where was I going to be at? So when I went to uh, New York, I, I told uh, Red Holzman, I said, listen, I don't want to cause any problems. I don't need to start. I said, I'll work my way. I'll earn my start. And he said, well, you know, you know you've know, you been an all-star and all this. I said, don't worry about it. I, you know, I'll, I'll work my way in. And um, that's pretty much what I did. And the guys themselves, they, they felt good about me having said that and and uh, they were all on my side, so it created a, a real good workplace. And as we continued to make our way, we lost that year to L.A. We felt as though we should have been a little more competitive, but we all, to a man, you know, felt as though we wanted to play L.A. again the next year. And we made it back to the uh, finals again. I played L.A. and um, won the last <laughs> Nick championship the next year. And interesting to note that you on that floor, I guess, or a part of the the team that saw Willis Reed make the triumphant return and give a boost, at least emotionally, uh, coming out of the locker room. That's become one of the uh, iconic moments of NBA history. Can you, do you remember that 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 emotional moment? What was it like in that building? Because I've been in the garden for some playoff moments, and there's nothing like that four point play that I think uh, Larry Johnson had with Chris Childs. I've never been in a basketball uh, venue where it got that loud for that moment in time. What was it like inside MSG when he comes out? And was there a sense that you were going to win that game no matter what at that time? Well, we we go back, and that happened the year before I got there. Okay. Okay? But mm -hmm. the, the thing in a nutshell is that every time that you, you know, that I've seen that, and I saw, I was, I was looking at that myself, and every time I've seen it since, I felt that, 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 that moment, you know, because it was such a, a, a like you said, an I, iconic moment. And that was something that, you know, you, you, you know, something that you'll never forget, even if you weren't there. It's like the Will Chamberlain um, <laughs> scoring 100 points. And, you know, everybody, you, you know, you, that says, okay, I was there. It, it was great, whatnot. And see, so you got 50,000 people saying they were there, and the place only held 1,800 people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a fish story, right? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> oh, that's it goes back to the song, like, like a snowball rolling down the side of a snow-covered hill is growing. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic. Earl Monroe's, I guess, the legendary uh, basketball hero from both HBCU and NBA Hoops as we continue with sports talk on Shadow League Radio. You look at the franchise right now. And the Knicks are struggling. They've actually become somewhat of a joke. Uh, people are always – they just can't seem to get out of their way, Earl. Um, as an alum of the great years of 
of that franchise. What kind of emotions does that evoke? Is that disappointment? Is it hurt? Uh, are you so far away from it that it really doesn't matter? I mean, you're a fab- fabric of that history. And well. <laughs> you, you really are. I mean, let's be real. There are those of us who grew up. And, and again, I'm from the DMV, so by the time I was old enough to really understand what was going on, you were already a Nick. So I had to learn about the legend of Earl uh, Monroe as a bullet because when I saw Earl Monroe play as a little child, he was playing for the Knicks. So to be a part of the fabric of the Knicks, I mean, you're, you're as big as anything that that franchise has. Does it hurt you to see them in the position that they're in right now? Well, you know, in the position they're in right now, you know, it's, it's you know, in all actuality, it's, it's a pretty enviable position when you think in terms of what they're trying to do. First of all, they've got a new coach. They've got a, you know, the new general manager, all that stuff going on for them now, the new president of the team, and they've got a plan. And, you know, it's not, it's not often that, that uh, a coach could come into a situation and doesn't really have to win. So what they've done is that they don't really have to win this year. But what they've done is that they've got players that they now they can evaluate over the course of the year to know who and what, you know, who they might keep for next year. So and they've got an experience for playing all year long. Now they've gone they'll go out, they've got all this money for free agents and now they'll go out and they'll look for free agents. So they'll hopefully get a good draft pick and of course they're hoping for this kid Zion, but you know, even though the the draft is, is it has a lot of talent on the front, it doesn't have a lot of talent in the back end. So they'll probably get a player with some talent. But at the same time, they're going to go out and try and get the franchise player, the guy that's going to come in and take this team to the next level. And so, you you know, you're in a pretty enviable position having that much money. Now, the only problem is can you who can you attract to come here? Exactly. You know, and if you're, if, you see, if, if, if they look at this team and say, okay, this team is maybe three, four years away, I might be a little hesitant if I'm a guy coming, coming here and I'm like 31 years old. That doesn't mean, you know, it might be three or four years away, but that doesn't mean you're going to get it in three or four years because you've got to have to time to build it up. But if this team gets a real good draft pick to get a good, real good free agents coming in, and you say, oh, okay, I can see ourselves, you know, being in a position to try and do something in the next couple of years, then I might want to come here. Do you like the way that the game is played right now? Well, you know, I can't say but so much about that, you know, because, you know, this is the game that I brought into the NBA. You know, they were they were talking about isolations and all that kind of stuff before before 1967. So, 
you know, I, I can't say I like the game the way it is. There's some aspects of it that I I could do away with, but at the same time, you know, as things go, it's the mode of of, of progress. It's the things that I did coming in. I see being done ten times. You know, each generation takes it a little further up. So it's you know it's exciting. You know, it's fantastic. And it's just the the natural course of the way things go. So what would you do away with right now? What would I do away with? You know, I would, I don't know. You know, what I would do though is I would I would probably try and raise the basket a little bit. You know, uh, <laughs> I think that you know the basket has been ten feet for all this time. Now you got guys who are playing that could dunk the ball without even jumping, and you know, so you know the aspect of skill, you know, is not the same. I mean, even though you've got you know a lot more talented kids because everybody is so athletic that make it a little bit more challenging and I think that you know that's probably the only thing that I would probably change I mean I look at the guys and how they play you, you take a team like a Houston um, you know here's a, here's a, you know it's, of course it's all stats you look at stats James Harding uh, has almost 600 unassisted baskets well he, he's got the ball 20 seconds out of the 24 seconds. <laughs> so so why wouldn't that why wouldn't that be? You know what I mean? <laughs> and he's able to throw that elbow out to clear some space and then step back and make that three ball. And exactly. I'm just thinking. But he's a great but he's a helpless you know shooter. I mean and, and player. I mean, you know, he can't take anything away from what he's done and what he's doing. Um, you know, but you know, there's a lot of things in the league that, you know, you 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 when you think about the New York Knicks teams of a long time ago, you think in terms of teams and teamwork, and you know the ball moves, the ball, you know you got shooters at every every spot, the ball moves and so forth. I, I just feel as though in order for a team to win, the ball has to move because if the ball is only in, in one spot for the most part. Other guys are never in the real rhythm to make the shots when you really need to have it done, especially in a playoff situation. We saw that with with uh, Cleveland last year when the ball was moving so much, you know, early on, and then all of a sudden, when when uh, uh, when, when Golden State started pressing and then the ball stayed in the bronze hands. It was all over. So, True indeed. you know what I mean? Yep. So, it's, it's, the ball It's an individual move. game now. It's an isolation game, and I think a lot of that kind of seeps its way into the things that are happening off the court right now as well, you know, because the players have a lot more, uh, uh, I guess, uh, power because of their imaging and, and, and social media and stuff like that. Uh, you mentioned Cleveland and as we wind it down, I got to ask you, you look at what LeBron is doing right now in terms of uh, not only being the face of the NBA, so to speak, but he's also active in the community and he's also active in the business of the game. I mean, he's got his own, uh, uh, you know, management team and they're, they're wielding a lot of power by, 
you know, signing a lot of players. And that may have even gotten in the way of the Lakers this year in terms of the way that the Anthony Davis thing played out. Uh, is there a sense that too much power for one player can be difficult? And would you be worried a little bit that at some level the owners, for lack of a better term, collude, although we know we ne- they never collude, <laughs> to, uh, you know, not be as amicable when negotiating with players who are represented by LeBron's firm. Is, is that good or bad for the league and the game, what happens? Well, you know, I, I, I think, you know, first of all, I think obviously players need to be represented so they can get their fair share. You know, there's a lot of money out there. And the, the money is, that the, you know, is gigantic is that the players are getting. But obviously, if, if they're getting that money, somebody else is getting a lot more. So, you know, that's, that being said, I still think that, you know, that players should be playing and managers and management should be managing. And I was thinking about this as a, as a matter of fact earlier, lying in bed, you know, that, you know, yes, maybe sometimes players shouldn't be in position with management to dictate who they're going to get and what they're going to get. I mean, when you think in terms of, the, if you go back, you know, I'm going to the old old school guys, like Jerry West, who everywhere he's been, he's been successful. You know, he was with Golden State, now he's with the Clippers. They've won, and they've done it in, in terms of management and not so much as what the, the players say they need to have. And I think that, you know, when it gets back to the, to that part, you know, yeah, players need to have, you know, the autonomy and so forth and so on. But management also needs to be able to dictate what they're going to do because in the long run, they're the ones who are going to be winning or losing. You know, players don't win or lose. They win and lose games. Management win and lose fans. And let Jerry Grouse tell it, it's players that win games and organizations that win championships. And unfortunately, the Bulls haven't won anything if you're a Chicago fan since the organization was able to lure a player like Michael Jordan into the fold. We wind it down with the incomparable Earl Monroe. A couple questions I got to get to or... Uh, I probably would get the Sandman treatment. Uh, Talk to me for a second about the impact that Coach Big House Games not only had on you from a basketball player standpoint, but on your life. You know, because I see so many similarities between he and the way he impacted his players and their lives, the way that Eddie Robinson impacted his players and their lives in the sport of football. The parallels are, are eerie. So having lived through that, what did that gentleman mean to you? Well, he was the all in all for me. Um, you know, um, he was more or less like a big father figure for all of us. Um, and, um, you know, the, the things that he said um, back in those days, the things he tried to impart on us, you know, you know, it rings, you know, true even to today. And in instances that I'm pretty close to the guys that I played with in college, uh, we still call each other every other day, you know, or every other week, every week. So we're always constantly in touch. And every 
time we talk, it, we talk in terms of things that he said to us and, and, how, and how it's affected us and, and what it's meant to us in our lives. You know, one of the things that, and, and, and I know we're going to get to it, but in, in my book that, that's coming out uh, next week, uh, Earl, Earl the Pearl, my story, I talk about Coach Gaines and an effect of what he's had you know, on us as, as men. Uh, we used to get in, into uh, a huddle, and uh, we used to have this thing about kill, kill, kill at the end of our prayers. And, you know, when you, we pray in the huddle, and we say kill, kill, kill. Sometimes when we get into the huddles, and we would say, and he would say things like, you know, opportunity at every door does not, but it's never been known to pick a lot. And we would look at each other. And we would think, what the heck is he talking about? You know, we're in the midst of a game. And then it rings on us that we've got the opportunity to win this game. You know, let's say they're not going to just give it to us. we got to go take the game. And if the opportunity, you know, exists, let's go and take advantage of the opportunity. These things ring true not only then, but it rings true throughout our our lives and and as we've gotten older. So, you know, he's, he was an a, a inspiration to us, you know, back when we played. And his words and, and, and his image and his legacy is still an inspiration to us now. Do you find yourself able to uh, transmit that message and does it resonate with the younger players that you may talk to these days or is it above them since you know you have a lot you have a generation of players right now that don't believe the world existed before the internet you know what i mean and yeah. social media so i'm just wondering if as you share stuff like this uh with them are they in awe uh how do you think it's being perceived well, you can't, you can't, you can't, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different process. Before you could get to talk to guys. Today, you know, guys are sheltered through not only just the team, you got take coaches or whatever the case may be. You know, they're, they're going through a process of, of whatever. So it's not about going up and say, hey, how you doing, da, da, da. You get a chance to talk to them, but briefly. So it's not a situation where you could come and say, okay, this is what it is. It's only when, you know, you're invited to the facility to speak to the kids or whatever the case may be. But even at that, it's not as good as a one-on-one where you're talking to guys, where you're giving them the type of advice that you needed, that you got when you came up. So unfortunately, that doesn't happen that often. But when it does happen, guys listen. I don't know if, in fact, that they actually take anything away from it because, you know, it's a different time. And in in their minds, you know, you know, like you said, the, the world the world started with Michael Jordan. So, for <laughs> well, some, Earl, let me tell you now, there are a lot of kids, and I deal with them all the time. The world started with LeBron. <laughs> so it's 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 it really keeps going, it keeps going. But you see, everybody still wants to be like Mike. That's when we talked about LeBron and the business and all that kind of stuff. It all started with Mike because yeah. Mike. You know, Mike started doing with the Nike stuff and so forth and so on. 
he set a he set a tone for the athletes, and it's it's a great tone. And I I I, I applaud the athletes who take who take their their careers in their own hands, and and, their, and their, you know all the other things that they do. I think that um, you know the thing in a nutshell is that uh, uh, he set a high standard, and um, Michael that is, and you know you have guys that are starting to live up to that. Before I let you go, and remember, it, these are just a few of the iconic moments that we've scratched the surface on that will be chronicled in Earl the Pearl, My Story, which is a book that comes out. When is that uh, book dropping again, Earl? On the 19th, which is next week. Okay, so that will be March 19th for those of you who are checking it out. So if you check it yeah. out online uh, after the fact, it's available on all the places that you would get your books from Amazon, uh, everywhere else. So you yeah. definitely want to check and it also, out. And also, Mark, if there's anybody in Jersey listening to it, I'm going to be at Bookings on the 24th, I think it is. Okay. And uh, signing and so forth. And I'll also be doing the same thing this uh, Sunday. At the, at the halftime in the Nick game. So if anybody's listening, come on by, get it. Come so on by and buy. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you coming to the DMV, D.C., Baltimore area on your tour at all? I'm I'm looking at things right now. As a matter of okay. fact, someone just sent me something today. So yeah, I'm hoping to try and get you know some of this stuff done up and get to the places that I, I want to be at. You know. Yeah, well, 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 keep us in the loop because I definitely want to meet you down there. But before okay. I let you go, in the interest of hard-hitting, you know, uh, generational journalistic excellence, I have to ask you this deep and provocative question before you go. Okay. Of all your nicknames, from Thomas Edison to the Pearl to Earl the Pearl to Black Magic, to Duke of Earl and Black <laughs> Jesus. I mean, which is your favorite nickname? If we were going to define you uh, by the nickname, because you had great nicknames. You couldn't go around. They say if somebody gives you one nickname, you're supposed to keep it because it was destined for you. You had like five. <laughs> and they all speak to what you meant to the game. So of them all, which do you enjoy the most? Well, because I'm from Philly, and, and and Jesus came from the Philly. It came from Philly. <laughs> I'll go with the black Jesus, uh, only because you know I was walking on water when I was there. <laughs> and yet, the statue that hangs is Rocky. Oh, what's up with that? <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out without myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's great stuff. The incomparable Earl Monroe, boys and girls. Remember his book, Earl the Pearl, My, uh, My Story, drops April 19th. Uh, he's going to be... March 19th. I'm sorry, March 19th. Uh... And he's going to be signing on March the 24th in New Jersey. And we hope to see him down in the DMV and all over the country. I'm sure Earl, your folks will get in touch with us. We'll post it on the website and make sure that uh, people read the fascinating story because yours is a story that 
really has stood the test of time. And I just hope that the younger generation start appreciating what you meant to the game. Because when it comes to being classy showmen who played at a championship level, you were simply one of the best, my friend. And I couldn't consider it an honor and privilege that you've chosen to spend some time with us. A heartfelt thanks for what you brought to the game and for spending some time with us here today on uh, Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. My, my best. Thank you, baby. And that's going to close the book on this edition of TSL Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. Your executive producer, as always, is Yusuf Khan. Once again, thanks to the incomparable Earl Monroe for dropping the knowledge on us like it's hot. Thank you for hanging out with us as well. Remember, find us at TSL Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. Remember, you can also find us on social media, Shadow League TSL and TSL Sports Talk. I'm Mark with a K, Gray with an A. You can find me at the sports group on facebook twitter and instagram remember give somebody you love a hug tonight you may not get a chance to do it tomorrow till next time i am mark gray remember you can always find us on twitter at tsl sports talk or shadow league tsl often imitated but never duplicated it's mark gray with tsl sports talk on shadow league radio 